politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when we will be pondering the greatest questions confronting the American people, such as should the use of a finger gun, uh, that's actually not really a firearm, it's just pretending that your finger is a gun. Should that be a crime resulting in severe punishment like uh, suspension from school? Well, it is in a place you wouldn't expect that crime to be particularly enforced. Uh, we're talking about Alabama and uh, a small town in Alabama. We will get to that story on the Michael Medved show. Uh, we will also get to a question about whether Jack Smith, the special prosecutor behind uh, really three of the four most serious prosecutions against uh, Donald Trump right now, uh, could Jack Smith really prove that Donald Trump knew that he lost the 2020 election? Trump still won't acknowledge that he lost the 2020 election. He is still insisting that he actually won. And he won big. He won in a landslide. Now, uh, it's not a crime to be crazy. I mean, it's only a crime if you use that craziness to, uh, uh, to do crimes against people. However... The, the difficulty for President Trump and the difficulty about this whole issue involving Jack Smith and proving that Trump knew that he actually lost is that the charges of fraud, the charges of trying to steal an election, if Trump believed in his heart and soul that he was actually fighting for justice, that he was fighting for the actual returns that uh, the American people had voted well, then that's a freedom of speech defense. It's the ultimate freedom of speech defense. You have the right to say things that are wrong. What you don't have the right to do is necessarily to defraud people. So we will get to that issue, which is very important and direct. And to charges of um, election rigging against Democrats... Uh, that uh, they not only rigged, uh, at least according to people who are loyalist to Trump, they not only rigged the election of 2020, there is a Democrat very prominent who says the Democrats are in the process of rigging the election of 2024. Is that true? Uh, we will get to that as well on the Medved Show, and we'll be speaking to Matt Lewis, who is the author of the new book, Filthy rich politicians, the swamp creatures, latte liberals, and ruling class elites cashing in on America. And uh, the book also comes with a, a brief prescription on what to do about it. We'll be speaking to Matt Lewis about that. Uh, first of all, there's more from uh, Ken Buck. Uh, Ken Buck, the very conservative uh, and principled conservative. A congressman from Colorado who uh, is a member of the Freedom Caucus but uh, does not necessarily favor the Kevin McCarthy decision to go forward to order a impeachment inquiry and uh, then to get some votes 
uh, authorizing, backing up his authorization of that inquiry for President Biden's impeachment. Here is uh, Ken Buck uh, on CNN uh, talking uh, about his position right now on the potential impeachment of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, clip two. I have not seen any evidence that links uh, President Biden to Hunter Biden's activities at this point. I will be getting a briefing later in the week. I'm looking forward to uh, understanding more of what the Oversight Committee has uncovered. But at this point, I have, I have not seen that evidence. Okay. And uh, then there's more. Uh, Manu Raju uh, spoke to Kevin McCarthy himself and uh, spoke to him about the votes uh, on the Republican side in favor of pursuing this avenue of impeachment. Clip one. You told Breitbart 12 days ago that you have votes, so what changed? You know what's interesting to me? You were a reporter for CNN, correct? Yes. I just laid out to you a lot of allegations based upon the American I'm public. I'm just your words. Why did you change your words? Okay, well, let, let, me, let me answer your question, because I've answered it every single day, and you could answer me every single day. Nancy Pelosi changed the president of this house. But that was this doesn't one preclude one. from a... Nancy Pelosi changed the president of this house on September 24th. It was withheld and good enough for every single Democrat here. It was good enough for the judge. Why would it have to be different today? What we've learned in the last couple weeks, wouldn't you want to know the answer to? Your whole job is reporting. You now have an accusation that the president took a bribe. You do know from your own reporting, from your own station, that they were selling a brand. You do know from your own reporting from CNN that the president went to and did conference calls, that the president went to lunches and dinners, just the dinners, and, the, and Hunter got a new Porsche. He got three points for the vote. But that's my question to you. Why don't you ask the other questions? Why don't you? Okay, the other question, uh, which was the one that Manu Raja was trying to ask, was uh, does he have the votes? Will there be enough votes in the House of Representatives? And the reason that's such a crucial issue is because there are 18 Republicans in the House, Eight, 18 of the, what is it, 218 who uh, represent the Republican majority. There are 18 Republicans who were elected in districts that Joe Biden carried. Now, in those districts where Joe Biden won those districts, and in some of them he won handily, but they kept their Republican congressmen anyway. In, in those districts, for people to be voting for impeachment at, at this point, before there is a, uh, a case even made specifically as what the grounds for impeachment are, that's a risky political proposition. Uh, for instance, uh, on CNN again, uh, Abby Phillips uh, was confronting Matt Gates, and uh, this was all about the question of timing and how they're handling this impeachment issue right now. Uh, listen. 
Seems like pretty strong evidence not, to me. None of which links President Biden to. Well, it was uh, Joe any, Biden on the phone. None of which he was calling into the meetings. Wait, Abby, are you actually trying to tell your viewers that that you don't believe that Joe Biden was involved in Hunter Biden's business deals? It's not it's a about hard case. It's not about what I believe. It's about whether whether there is evidence that President Biden is linked to the misdeeds that uh, might be linked to Hunter Biden. That's the issue. Uh, but I want to get a, back. That was I, I tortured. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, come look, on. He was. He, wait, hold on. Can you just acknowledge that when it, he calls into the business no, 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 deals, no, no, no. that he's involved? This is when not, he calls into the to the this dinners. Is not about, you don't think that's involvement? This is, first of all, this is not about innuendo. It's not about what I believe. It's a question. Do you have evidence? If you had evidence that Joe Biden was linked to uh, Hunter Biden's business deals in a way that is illegal, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You would probably have the votes for an impeachment inquiry, but you don't. Because well, of people I, like Ken Buck and people like Don Bacon and many others in your conference. Well, I see the evidence differently. I think that we need to, that's why we need to have the votes and have the debates and have the hearings. And again, they represent their constituents just like I represent mine. Okay. Uh, speaking about him representing his constituents, uh, there is a piece by Robert Kennedy Jr., who is one of those people who I don't think has spoken out yet on the impeachment charges against his opponent because he's running to seize the Democratic nomination from uh, President Biden. Robert Kennedy Jr. writes in the Wall Street Journal today, it has become clear that the Democratic National Committee doesn't want a real primary and is willing to disenfranchise Democratic voters from choosing their nominee. The DNC has refused to host debates, though a vast majority of Democratic voters want and expect them so they can judge which candidate has the popular appeal and the vigor to challenge the Republican nominee. More on alleged... Michael Medved show the headline says the Democratic Party rigs the primaries okay rigging the general election that's something that Donald Trump has complained about for years he believed his first election which he won uh, the election of 2016 first time he ever ran for public office he had said repeatedly that the election was going to be rigged that Hillary Clinton was planning to steal the election and that might be one of the reasons he looked and seemed and later people close to him have confirmed that he was so shocked on election night when it, yes, appeared that he had won uh, the majority of the Electoral College. And uh, as a matter of fact, Hillary Clinton called him in the middle of the night and conceded. That uh, actually let him know that it was real. But here, this is from Robert Kennedy Jr., who is very upset that uh, the uh, Democratic National Committee isn't allowing uh, President Biden or other registered Democrats, people who are going to be running for the Democratic nomination, to participate in debates. He said, even if candidates reach voters anyway, the party is trying to stack the primary schedule in Joe Biden's favor. The DNC has revoked New Hampshire's century-old status as the first primary state and replaced it with South Carolina. Mr. Biden won the latter in 2020, and he won it in a landslide, but he lost both the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus. 
The DNC seems to have forgotten the purpose of the modern primary system, writes Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, which is to replace backroom crony politics with a transparent democratic process. Our campaign has contacted the DNC in advance of its next meeting in Washington, asking for a clear process in which the candidate chosen by a majority of primary voters will be the party's nominee. We live in a time, writes Robert Kennedy Jr., when a growing number of Americans think that democracy is broken and that the political system is rigged. The DNC's recent actions confirm this outlook. It will better serve America to run a fair and free primary election. Uh, does it sound like Robert Kennedy Jr. is thinking about a third-party run? Uh, maybe he would claim that he is the true Democrat in this race. It would be terrible news for Joe Biden or for whoever the Democrats nominate for president if uh, Kennedy Jr. decides, uh, because again, he's not going to win the election, but could he easily get 5% or more of the Democratic votes? Sure. And would that be enough to uh, hand the uh, presidency to the Republicans? Sure. Uh, meanwhile, there is this question, <clears throat> which is, how can Jack Smith prove that Trump knew he lost the 2020 election? And this is a thoughtful piece by a law professor who is a uh, opinion contributor to The Hill website. And uh, Dana Radcliffe, uh, who's going to be joining us on the show on Friday, is a senior lecturer at business ethics at the Cornell uh, University School of Law. And uh, she writes, count one of special counsel Jack Smith's August 1st indictment of Donald Trump alleges that he used knowingly false claims of election fraud in a conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. To help prove Trump's guilt, prosecutors will seek to demonstrate that Trump knew his fraud claims were false. There are strong reasons to think, she writes, uh, that uh, Smith and his team will succeed. Between the election and January 6, 2021, Trump was aware that he and his allies were losing state and federal lawsuits alleging election fraud. The total reaching 61 different losses in court by early January. Trump also knew that no state legislatures were acting in any way to change their electoral college votes. Besides persisting in his claims of election fraud after having been told by authoritative sources they were baseless, Trump showed in other ways that he was uninterested in facts and evidence. And this is actually fascinating because she lists some of the evidence that is obviously going to be a part of any legal proceeding, which is going forward, uh, both in uh, Georgia and in Washington, D.C., uh, about Trump trying to overturn the election. He pressured top Democratic, uh, pardon me, he pressured top Department of Justice officials telling them, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Now, that was on tape. 
Trump tried to install an ally as acting attorney general and have him send a letter to key states falsely claiming the Department of Justice had found irregularities in some of the state election results, hoping to dissuade the states from assigning their electoral votes to Biden. Uh, Trump asked Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find 11,780 votes, just enough for Trump to win the state. And uh, in a January 4th White House meeting, after Trump lawyer John Eastman assured Vice President Pence he had unilateral authority to halt Congress's electoral vote certification, but when pressed admitted it had never been tested in court, Pence then exclaimed to Trump, Did you hear that, Mr. President? Even your own counsel is not saying I have that authority. Then Trump replied, that's okay. I prefer the other suggestion that the vice president could act on his own to stop the official count. Uh, just hours after Pence had insisted to Trump directly face to face that he lacked the authority to intervene in the certification process, Trump sent out a patently false tweet telling supporters he and Pence were, quote, in total agreement that the vice president has the power to act. On January 6, Trump falsely tweeted that many states wanted to decertify their electoral votes for Biden. A given expected testimony that Trump had conceded to some staff that he lost dozens of failed lawsuits, the vast informational resources that are available to a president, the fact that reliable sources told Trump again and again there was no significant fraud, and Trump's proven habit of lying, it cannot simply be assumed, uh, Dana Radcliffe writes, it cannot simply be assumed that Trump believed his fraud claims, nor can it be asserted that Trump believed them since assertions in court require evidence. Since believing is a state of mind and not empirically observable, courts may look to a defendant's behavior for evidence that he had the belief in question. In Trump's case, the problem is that while some of his actions are consistent with his believing the fraud claims, his behavior generally between the election and January 6th is much more consistent with his knowing those claims were false. Uh, meanwhile, what is about Trump and how does he fit in in this world of super rich politicians? Is he one of them? or part of the opposition that wants to drain the swamp. We'll be talking to Matt Lewis, author of Filthy Rich Politicians, coming up on The Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, it is great to welcome back to the show Matt Lewis, who is a senior columnist at The Daily Beast. He is uh, the author of a brand new book, uh, which I read with uh, great eagerness last night after having coming home from a screening of uh, a movie that I actually liked that we are going to be uh, reviewing later this week. Uh, Matt Lewis's new book is called Filthy Rich Politicians, uh, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America. Are those uh, ruling class elites, Matt, that you're talking about in this book, about filthy rich politicians? Are they all Democrats and uh, liberals? 
No, Michael. I would say it's pretty evenly divided, to be honest. Um, and I didn't necessarily set out to make it that way, but it, it really seems like this is a uh, human nature problem, a politician problem, not a Democrat or a Republican problem. Yeah, I mean, you have at the end of the book, you have a, a list, which, of course, everybody's going to be rushing to immediately, of the richest uh, United States members of Congress, the richest senators. And it's about evenly split between Republicans and uh, Democrats. The richest senator of them all is, uh, as I read your your list here, the richest senator of them all is Senator uh, Rick Scott of, uh, of Florida, who's former Republican governor of Florida. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I have to say, it, it, there are questions about that because members of Congress write the rules in terms of how they have to report their wealth. And so it's impossible to know precisely how rich they are and some lists have Daryl Issa, you know, at the top of the list, another Republican. Uh, but Rick Scott, uh, I was going by, I think, Business Insider's list there. They're very good. And uh, the interesting thing about that list is not only is it pretty evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, but um, about half of them, a little more than half of the people on my list, and I did the, the 50 richest members of Congress, uh, a little more than half of them got their wealth by virtue of inheritance or marriage. And about half, a little bit less than half, but about half got there by, you know, starting a business or earning it. And uh, in some cases, earning it is is uh, questionable, you know, uh, it looks to be like insider trading in some cases. But in some cases, it's kind of admirable. Uh, for example, there's a Republican congressman named Kevin Hearn out of Oklahoma that is a very interesting story. This is a guy who started off working at McDonald's. He saved enough money to buy a McDonald's, and now he's one of the richest members of Congress. So uh, this isn't necessarily a negative book, uh, it's, but I think it's an inter interesting story. Okay, one of the things that uh, obviously is a question that should be raised here is what's the problem with having uh, politicians who are super rich? I mean, one of the arguments for Donald Trump, who makes your list as the richest president we've ever had, uh, one of the arguments for Donald Trump was he's somebody who knows the world of business and to be able to confront the world of business uh, you have to have some business experience yourself. So where is there an argument that somehow great business success should count against somebody who's a candidate for public office? Well, maybe Donald Trump's the example of that. <laughs> I do think he got, I do think Trump got a lot of, uh, he did make a lot of political hay out of that. You know, I, I can't be bought. Believe me, I know, I know all the rules. Uh, I know how to, you know, I know how to play this game. Uh, I think that was a lot of BS. Um, but having said that, you know, I'm a conservative-leaning guy, and so I'm not inherently anti-rich people. I lo would love to be a rich person myself, and I think that if you can, well, maybe the book will help you in that regard. <laughs> Let's hope we get some sales out of this interview. 
Um, but, uh, you know, if you could start a business and make money, that, that would give you a certain amount of, of experience and wisdom, and, and I have nothing against that. I do think, though, it is true that, that in recent decades, the gap between members of Congress and the rest of us has widened dramatically. And right now, the average member of Congress is about 12 times richer than the average American household. And at a certain point, I think that gap does begin to, you know, create a distance between um, even especially the lower chamber, you know, the House of Representatives are supposed to be, uh, you know, it's not the House of Lords, this is like the House of Commons. And, and I think Madison envisioned that they would be, that, that members of the House would be very dependent and sympathetic to the American people. And it's a little bit hard to be that way, I think, when you're a millionaire, um, which since 2014, the average member of Congress is, is a millionaire. And something like 8% of the rest of us are in that category. Okay, uh, let me put a little challenge to you. And I thought about this when reading Filthy Rich Politicians, which is uh, posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, can you think of any great American political leader who wasn't rich? And don't say Lincoln, because Lincoln was <laughs> the, Lincoln was the most successful railroad lawyer in the country. He was famous because he had made a, a bunch of money, bought a very nice house. Uh, the the clothing bill that Mary Lincoln had in the White House was huge, and Lincoln had had achieved the money. He had a very poor background, but he had made some money in life. No, I think it's a point. It's a point well taken. We certainly have had presidents who started off poor, you know, being born in a log cabin or, or whatever. Um, but some of our best presidents, including George Washington, have been incredibly wealthy. Um, Theodore Roosevelt. All, all of the all yeah. of the Rushmore presidents were wealthy people. Absolutely, and I do think first I would make a distinction. I think between presidents and members of con and members of the House of Representatives. I think that's really the big difference we've seen in recent years is that members of the House of Representatives are now. 12 times richer than the average <laughs> yeah. American. Yeah, it's a good uh, point. That's the big difference. The other problem I would say, Michael, is it's not so, you know, part of the book is, is simply pointing out that the rich tend to get elected. And while I think that's somewhat, you know, potentially troubling at a certain point, it's not the big problem in the book. The bigger problem, it's not that the rich get elected, it's that the elected get rich. It's that people who get elected tend to get richer while in office. And I think that is the part of the book. And in some, by the way, in some cases, this is perfectly understandable. And in other cases, I think it's, uh, it, it, it's certainly the appearance of impropriety. And, and that is the part that I think is dangerous because it is eroding trust in institutions and elected officials. The sense is that the game is rigged. And partly because I think it is rigged. And um, so that's really, if there's a, a part of the book that I think uh, is concerning, it's that part. Well, again, we will talk about some of your suggestions on how to deal with that. I mean, it seemed like the current 
controversy involving the Biden family, which could lead to a new impeachment crisis for our country. Uh, that's a perfect example of people using insider political connections uh, for the sake of building personal wealth. Uh, we're speaking to Matt Lewis. He is the author of Filthy Rich Politicians. Are all rich politicians, by definition, filthy? By no means. Uh, we will get to more with Matt Lewis coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, speaking uh, about filthy rich politicians. That's the name of the new book, sure to be a bestseller, by Matt K. Lewis, prominent conservative commentator, senior commentator for the Daily Beast. And uh, Matt, at the end of the book, you list uh, suggestions for changes uh, that uh, might actually help deal with the problem that you're talking about, which is people in Congress in specific uh, losing touch with the people they've been elected to represent because they're so much wealthier, 12 times wealthier on average in terms of personal uh, wealth and personal worth uh, than the typical American would be. One of the points that you make that I think almost everyone would agree with, in fact, I, I haven't heard people disagreeing, is to ban stock trading for members of Congress and their families. Uh, what's the argument against that? Because I haven't heard a good one. I don't think there is a good one. What's funny is that when uh, this idea was first gaining steam, uh, of all people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez started pressuring then Speaker Nancy Pelosi to support it. And Nancy Pelosi sounded like, you know, Milton Friedman. <laughs> she was like, hey, this is a free market economy. We're capitalists <laughs> here. What are you talking about? And that lasted for about 15 minutes. And, and Nancy Pelosi then, uh, in you know, at least said she supported banning stock trading. Um, although there are questions because – as you noted, Michael, everyone seems to be in favor of this. It seems like common sense. Uh, and even I would say the majority of members of Congress say they support banning stock trading. And yet it never seems to happen. Um, and well, I, again, uh, part of it, part of it has to be right. Making clear stock owning. In other words, if you have some stock you've accumulated and it's part of your savings and the stock is there in an investment account, uh, no one is saying you have to give up all your investments. It's just you're not going to be actively trading or managing an account or uh, using inside information while you're a member of Congress, right? That's the idea. Well, I mean, there are different ideas. Um, but the interesting thing is, until about 10 years ago, insider trading wasn't even illegal. So <laughs> you technically could have gone into an Intel committee hearing, found out something nobody else knows, uh, dumped all your stock, told your brother-in-law to dump all of his stock, and that would have been perfectly 
perfectly legal. Now, insider trading is technically illegal, uh, but certainly the appearance of it still happens. There are some people who want to change the law to allow for blind trusts. I would certainly allow the ownership of mutual funds, which would be very difficult to game if one were trying to, pretty much impossible. So, um, you know, the devil's in the details, but the, everyone is, is sort of says that they're in favor of, of some version of this, and yet they can never really settle on it. And in fact, the funny thing is the day after my book published, and this is the most important thing I call for is, is banning, you know, stock trading from, from members of Congress. Uh, literally the day after my book published, um, Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri, and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, announced they had a bill that would do exactly what I'm calling for. So there, there are politicians pushing for this. It is bipartisan, and yet uh, it hasn't gotten done. And, you know, Michael, um, as I was writing this book, at a certain point I had this, this, <laughs> this weird uh, thought, which is they could ban stock trading before my book came out. You know, and which would be great for the country, but bad for my book. And that that fear, uh, that fear settled for about five minutes when I, before I realized, oh no, they're never going to do that. So, okay, speaking um, speaking so about your book, there there's something else that came up where I, I I must say I disagree with you. One of the suggestions you make for improving this situation with draining the swamp is to treat books like speeches and what that part of that is based on is that you have a uh, a list of the 10 richest US presidents and it includes uh, Bill Clinton who doesn't come from money who never really earned a great deal of money he was getting $34,000 a year as governor of Arkansas uh, he and his wife made money on books and by the way, Obama's made even more. Uh, uh, Michelle Obama has two of the best-selling nonfiction books in history, and they've made millions and millions of dollars. Why, how would how would you ban politicians from getting book contracts like I assume you did? So yeah. So first of all, um, let me lay out the sort of the challenge or the problem that I see with books. Um, with poli with politicians' books, one thing is politicians tend to use their political perch to sell the books. In some cases, that's simply the fame, right? So, Bernie Sanders became a millionaire because he wrote a book. Ron DeSantis became a millionaire because he wrote a book at the exact time he was announcing for president. Yeah, the um, book didn't do that well. He got a million. He became a millionaire because of it, though. Man, because um, he got got an advance, but you expressed yeah. earning back your advance. But go ahead. So that's interesting. But I think what is more problematic are these bulk orders. So what happens a lot of times is well, this you're is Jim Wright, right? Well, that yeah, that goes back to Jim Wright. But you, nowadays, you're a politician. You write a mediocre book. But the National Republican Senatorial Committee or the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or whatever, they buy 50,000 copies. And that boosts you to the bestseller list. And potentially, 
you could make money ind- individually as an, as an individual uh, from the money that is made from selling those books. Um, and that could be from royalties or the advance. Um, and so what I propose is that while you are serving in Congress, books would be treated like speeches. So politicians currently, members of Congress currently, are not allowed to be paid for giving a speech. They can give a speech, but they can't get paid for it. And I think books are similar. While you're serving in Congress, uh, you could write a book. Certainly no one could stop you. That's, that's free speech. Um, but I do not think you should be allowed to make more than – here's the caveat. Members of Congress right now are allowed to earn $30,000 of, 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 of money. This, is not, this doesn't count investments, but of, of, of additional money, like if you're a consultant or something, a supplemental money. I think you could make $30,000 from a book. I don't want you to become a millionaire while you're in Congress because you wrote a book. Uh, basically, uh, what what possible change could we see in our system that would give people of middle class income? I mean, poor people simply are not going to be in a position to run for public office. But what kind of change would we need to allow middle class people to have a better chance of winning political office? Well, I guess the first thing to think about, Michael, is, um, you know, as a conservative person who believes in the rule of law and the Constitution, um, you know, we do have to keep in mind, like, for example, there are certain people who are in favor of public financing of campaigns, which I'm not in favor of. And I think that's no, what makes this not, book. Right. That's what makes uh, no, makes no welfare for politicians. <laughs> right. But that's what makes this book kind of unique. A lot of people who have written books like this are people on the left, and they advocate things like public financing of campaigns, which probably would, as a result, allow more middle-class people to run for office, potentially. Um, but I think it would be like patently unconstitutional, and it would go against my, my values. So I'm not advocating for that. But I do think there are things we can do. Uh, that would level the playing field. Um, And so I'll just give you like one example. Um, Right now, if you run for political office, um, you're allowed to to pay yourself a salary out of your campaign. You're not allowed to provide yourself health care from the campaign. You can pay health care for your staffers, but not for yourself as a candidate. That's one little thing that might allow people who otherwise couldn't have, who are not millionaires, to run for office. Matt Lewis, the name of the book is Filthy Rich Politicians. Next time on the Medved Show, a a naturalist who does a popular podcast says she may not believe in Bigfoot, but we need him in this greatest nation on God's green earth.